this week, as I have done every week, I looked over three hours worth of lecture and tried to figure out what we were going to do with our time. Um, and tonight we were going to cover both divorce and pornography, and I made an executive decision to just focus on pornography tonight, but I want to be clear on why that is. Uh, it's actually because, um, because divorce is too important, and I just couldn't cover it well enough in the time, um, whereas pornography is too pressing to throw out, but I could do a very good job with tonight. And so here's, here's the plan, actually. Um, to, to cover the material tonight uh, should lead us to just after our break time. So we'll take a break, we'll come back, and then we'll finish with a long period available for all your questions and answers and just culminate in that. Um, any questions that have been sticking out to you and you haven't had a chance to, um, you know, our, our goal in this was really to provide ample time for questions and we've had a lot of um, time constraints on that. And so I thought it'd be better after our break to just return and, and do that right uh, until I've exhausted your questions or you have exhausted me. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, that means our, our agenda is, is very focused tonight. It is to talk about pornography. And again, as we look at this issue, we've actually already laid a pretty solid foundation for this. In fact, if you can remember all the way back to our initial first few lectures, we sometimes illustrated those things uh, by looking at pornography. But I, uh, again, because it's such a pressing issue, I don't know if you're aware of the statistics, but uh, as much inside the church as outside, it is uh, outright epidemic levels. It is a part of many people's lives. It is readily available in our pockets through our smartphones. Um, and our culture at large uh, is, um, is moving towards integrating it into their understanding of a healthy lifestyle. So it's not going anywhere. Okay? Um, so it is worth taking some time to talk about. And the best place for us to begin uh, tonight is with the words of Jesus. And so specifically here, I'm talking about Matthew chapter 5, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And in, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reviewing the law and specifically the Jewish teaching of the law, the cultural understanding of the law, um, and pressing it deeper. Jesus says at the beginning of this, don't think that I've come to throw out the law. I've come instead to fulfill it. And of course, he does that in and of his own person by living the life we could not live and uh, being obedient on our behalf and then dying for our shortcomings, our sins, and our failures, um, offering us forgiveness. But another way that he fulfills the law is he takes us to the full intent of. He fills the law full, if you will. He takes us to the full intent of the law. And so that's what he's doing here with the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. It says here in Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he quotes the seventh commandment, but he deepens our understanding he doesn't talk here about reductionistic ideas of sexual propriety. 
He doesn't talk about external boundaries or what is taboo or these types of things. He presses into, he draws attention to what's going on with our heart, with our desires. Now, just in a broad principle, this is a very significant move that Jesus makes. Consider uh, the, the logical uh, explanation that he makes here. We tend to think of sin uh, in terms of a destination. And so we can look at the law and go, well, that's good. That's fine. I've never been to adultery town, right? I, it's not a place that I've been. And so I, therefore, am righteous and not a lawbreaker. But instead, Jesus suggests that we should think of sin in terms of a journey, okay? And so maybe you never arrive there, but where are you headed? Where are your steps taking you, okay? And as he points out here, as he does later in Matthew chapter 7, all of our sinful attitudes and actions start internally in the heart, in sinful desires and thoughts. And so what he suggests here is that it is very possible to break the seventh commandment uh, without another person. Do you see that? It doesn't require another person. I mean, you say, yeah, but there must be someone to ogle. There must be someone to look, look at. But, of course, our imagination can service that opportunity and possibility just as well. Okay? Um, and so it's important, first and foremost, that he roots the danger of sexual sin not somewhere out there. Right? He doesn't put uh, the danger out there, nor does he blame women for being seductresses or dressing this or that way, as was often done by the moralists of his day and is often done by the moralists of ours. He maintains instead that our greatest enemy to holiness is in our hearts, is internal. Okay? As he says here in Matthew 15, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Every fruit of sin in our life begins at the root level of what's going on in our heart. By rooting the sin in the individual heart, we see again that there doesn't need to be two people interacting for sexual sin. Adultery from Jesus' perspective can happen from a distance, across a room, even without a partner entirely because it happens in the mind. Now, clearly, this is significant in our discussion of pornography. Just a basic introduction, if you wanted a, uh, a positive ethic of pornography, it always starts in the same place. Who is it hurting? It doesn't even involve another person. It's in the realm of private decisions and private life, etc. Jesus is very interested, as we see here, in our private life, in what's going on in our heart in what it shows here. Uh, and so we as Christians can't set aside and basically say, uh, or let the, uh, well, it's not harming anyone, um, logic be enough for our ethic. One of the reasons why this is the case is because we have to understand that porn use, the use of pornography, shapes our sexuality. Now go all the way back to when we were talking about embodied sexuality, the fact that we are human beings with physical bodies and those bodies are part of our life. They're part of our identity, 
Although you're not merely your body, your body is clearly you. And so the union between a man and woman in marriage being a physical union, one that goes as far as it actually brings those two physical bodies together for a shared biological purpose, procreation, um, makes us realize um, how significant our bodies are. Okay. What I'd like to suggest to you tonight is that pornography, especially when it's coupled with sexual stimulation, masturbation and the like, like any other habit, it changes us. It's not just something we do, it's something that feedback loops shapes us. In fact, I would suggest to you that it is liturgical in nature. Okay. Now, I know we at Calvary Chapel aren't very much of a liturgical people. You may have grown up in the Catholic Church or maybe the Eastern Orthodox, and so when you think liturgy, uh, you think the sound of bells and the smell of incense and very uh, you know, formal attire and robes and things like this. Maybe you think of standing and sitting and kneeling and standing and sitting and kneeling again. However, don't ever forget that the two things Jesus gave us to do that are ordinances, even of our evangelical Bible-based church, are embodied in nature, right? Communion is a liturgy. It takes our body, and that's a particular expression. We don't just um, think about Jesus' crucifixion. We partake. Okay? And the same with baptism. We don't just enter into our new identity as being died with Christ. We actually physically are lowered into the water, raised out of the water. And the reason why that is the case is because God has designed us physically. Okay? And so our body is a, uh, is a learning tool. Again, it shapes us. What a liturgy is supposed to do in Christian thinking is to be formative, to shape us. Okay? It's, it's a habit that makes us a particular type of people. Okay? But the truth is, our life is full of habits that make us a particular type of people. Okay? And so what I'm suggesting to you is the practice of consuming pornography and the practice of, uh, of monosexual stimulation or masturbation isn't just something we do, but a habit that shapes the things that we do, shapes the way we think about the things that we do, shapes our views of sexuality uh, in general. In other words, I am suggesting to you that what you do in private actually shapes how you relate to people in public. Okay. Um, there's a whole bunch of levels where I want to demonstrate that this is the case, um, but ultimately, I want you to see with me tonight that uh, pornography moves in the wrong direction. Okay. We've set out God's ideal, his design for our sexuality. Okay. It's moving somewhere. It has intentions and purpose. It's not merely something we do with our bodies, but something our bodies help us to move towards. Things like intimacy, for example. What I want you to see is that inherently in its design, in its reality, pornography moves us in the wrong direction. It's not neutral. It doesn't just keep us out of the destination, which is another way that sometimes people think about pornography. If you go back to and remember what Freud thought about our sexuality, that we were all in danger of sexual repression, 
and that not expressing sexual desires would leak out in some form of harmful behavior, then porn can become medicinal, allowing you the outlet that you need so that you don't cause harm. But it's not morally neutral, it's not positive in its effect, but it does in fact uh, shape us in the wrong way. Now, one of the basic problems, and we talked about this back in embodied sexuality with pornography, doesn't have to do with our bodies and thinking and our shaping, but how we view other people. Like we talked about, because we have this psychosomatic unity that we are, in the words of Karl Barth, uh, ensouled bodies and embodied souls. Okay? Because there's a unity in these two factors of our life. And because every person we encounter is, uh, you know, has the dignity of being one of God's image bearers, we have to engage with others and their sexuality in a way that recognizes their full personhood. As we talked about, the marriage covenant provides a avenue or a venue for sexuality that gives fully your mind and your body, your time and your life, your budget and your emotions, your fears, and your desires. It gives to the other person fully, and so it's the only thing that uh, is rightly and truly expressed when we give another person our body, okay? Pornography, of course, treats people as merely bodies, and therefore tools for our own sexual satisfaction. It doesn't recognize the whole personhood, it doesn't care for the whole personhood, just the image of their naked flesh, okay? Um, even if the actors are willing, as we said, it is still exploitative because it uses people for our own pleasure, for our own ends. It takes with very, very little give. And like we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that doesn't matter if they're compensated for the act because it's not an equal or appropriate compensation. Uh, it reduces sexuality to a commodity to be exchanged instead of the interaction between two ensouled bodies giving of themselves wholly. I belong to you and you belong to me. In fact, we can push this further even if there is no medium of pornography, no pictures or videos or what have you. Uh, it is still exploitative even if you're only evoking your imagination. It is reductionistic. It is using people, and specifically their image, using them for your own satisfaction. But the thing is, it's not just wrong because of how it treats others. Like I said, it's wrong because of the way it shapes our own sexuality. And this is on a couple of different levels. First off, it trains the brain for novelty instead of intimacy. Uh, so first, first is the one that I just mentioned. It's this difference between person and object. Either we recognize the full personhood, which is what sexuality is designed to do, uh, or we objectify the person. Okay? Now, I don't even have to go to the Bible for objectifying language. That is a common concern in pornography, especially for feminists, right? Uh, that basically the objectifying of women is part of the big feminist problem. 
that it just treats women as, as those to be consumed for the sake of sexual pleasure. But we as Christians, we have a deeper understanding of that as we just talked about. But the second one I want to point out to you is that it moves towards novelty instead of intimacy. As we've seen in our classes, the purpose of sex and even the physical orgasm, the climax of sexual contact, it's geared towards intimacy. Um, the goal of a covenant marriage relationship is to become one flesh, to use the words of Genesis 2. And this involves knowing the other person. In fact, the idiom that's used throughout the Old Testament for a sexual relationship is that one, knowing another person. And Adam knew Eve, his wife. Okay. Pornography, however, is built on a different foundation, not growing in your knowledge of a person, not deepening in your intimacy of understanding, but actually evoking uh, uh, evoking a different foundation. After all, uh, you aren't interested in knowing all of a person, just what's under their clothes. But here's the thing, especially in our world where pornography is readily available. If, if you will, do a little thought experiment with me. Go back to the world of pornography 80 years ago. Think of accessibility and what it would entail to expose yourself to pornography then. It took effort. Uh, it took a, a public act, right? Walking into the type of place that had those things. It took interacting with another human being. Uh, and uh, the possibility of mass consumption was tremendously limited. Maybe there were three brands of magazines and they came out once a month, right? Now go to our world as it is now, and this is readily available wherever you are in private uh, and can, um, can just turn from one image to another over and over again, you know? Whereas a regular porn user may have been exposed to, over the course of their life, a few hundred naked people's images. You can do that in minutes today. That's one of the things that makes this whole thing so significant for our time. Um, but what that does is, again, it trains the brain for novelty. It, this is why, um, no one is ever satisfied with the picture they saw last week. This is why we didn't stop publishing pornography uh, when the first one came off the presses. And it's like, that's it. We've met the entire need of the market. No, it is, it is the thrill of the novelty, of the newness, of the differences, of the unseen. Okay. Now, when you add this, to a physical system like our sexuality that is built deep into the brain, this is intensified, okay. uh, intensified in a way that actually trains us in this direction. Okay. Um, sexual arousal, as well as orgasm, use the reward center of the brain, releasing dopamine, okay, bringing pleasure and causing us to seek more. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, it also comes with another hormone, oxycotin. Oxy, that's not right. Uh, I can't remember what it is. We talked about it. Um, but another one that moves us towards bonding, right? And so the sexual act becomes something that makes you soften towards another people. 
person, makes you trust them more. Um, but the pleasure route that's in the brain, the same one that leads to addiction in drugs or video game addictions or tons of other things, um, basically uh, it's shaped in a way to affirm the goodness of sexuality and God's design. But when it's, uh, when it's connected with easily accessible pornography that is built on novelty instead of intimacy, which is built on, you know, what, um, what C.S. Lewis called the harem of the imagination uh, instead of a spouse, um, what you get is basically rapid fire overstimulation because porn is constantly available and used heavily. Uh, it decreases the effectivity of that reward center. Your brain gets used to it. Remember the old ads from Dare? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Okay. Your brain on pornography, you get used to that high, and it's so easy to reach it, the norm of your brain becomes the high instead of the norm. What that means is, over time, the reward centers uh, and the dopamine receptors shrink physically in response to overstimulation. Just like when you walk out into a bright street and your eyes are sensitive, so you squint, okay? In the same way, the brain actually goes, this is too much stimulation, and so it, it limits its ability to experience it, okay? And I bet you can guess what happens next. That means you need more exposure for the same feeling, okay? That's why novelty becomes such an intoxicating part of this. Because when you incorporate novelty in, you have a way around that. It's not, uh, it doesn't have to be measured, if you will. This is a little bit crass, but in quantity, it doesn't have to be measured. Uh, uh, the qualitative difference of the novelty fills in that branch. Okay. When researchers compared brain scans of porn users and scans of non-users, they found that the more porn a person had used, the less their reward center activated when images of pornography were flashed on the screen. They just don't register on the brain in the same way. With a dulled reward center, a person can't feel the effects of dopamine as well. As a result, the porn they've been using can stop producing the same excitement they used to feel about it, and therefore many go in search of more hardcore material to get a bigger dopamine burst. In a study that was done a few years ago, researchers found that when male subjects saw the same porn film repeatedly, they found it harder to get an erection to the film over time, and they said they were progressively less aroused by it. When researchers introduced a new video after 18 viewings of the old one, both subjects' erections and arousal spiked. Okay. What happens, though, when we do this habitually, not just a single experiment here, but do it uh, weekly or even daily over the course of years, is it makes a significant part of what's attractive to us sexually novelty. You see why that's problematic? And I'm not just suggesting here that pornography is fake and therefore will uh, you know, make you dissatisfied with your spouse. I'm suggesting something much more significant that it actually makes what you desire in sexuality novelty. And this is wreaking havoc even in our marriages today because the bedroom is now a place of performance where there always has to be an upping of the ante for there to be any um, sense of satisfaction. We rewire our brains so it's what we've never seen before that is arousing and pleasurable. 
And so again, I'm not just saying that porn is built on the wrong foundation, one that's based on novelty, but that it begins to shape us to pursue novelty and mistake it for sexuality, mistake it for intimacy. Uh, there are so many books and films that have recognized this problem and have been preaching this to the world around us. Um, I think of, of Don John, which none of us should see because it's very explicit in its pornographic uh, material, but is basically a film about a man who, because of his porn addiction, can't have a romantic, sustainable relationship. Um, there, there are other uh, versions of this story as well that we've gotten used to telling, okay? Even just the tension we're having, um, think of uh, the film Her that came out a few years ago where a man falls in love with his own operating system, okay? A piece of artificial intelligence. But what that film is really about is about the problem we're having culturally for real human connection and how we're turning to technology to satisfy that because it's easier, okay? And pornography is a big part of that. But that's not the only place where it's wrong. It also defines sexuality in terms of selfishness instead of around giving. Porn use is just that, it's use. There is a consumer and a product being consumed. Um, pornography and masturbation cultivate a sexuality that is inherently self-oriented. Sex and your expression of it becomes primarily about you and your satisfaction. And you cannot tell me that if that is the way that you primarily and regularly respond to the opposite sex on a screen for hours a day, that it doesn't impact the way you treat people outside of those hours of the opposite sex. Um, but ultimately, it says all of this world, you know, a whole panoply, a, um, uh, a, uh, a gaggle. I'm trying to think of the one from Three Musketeers. Um, a plethora. It cultivates a plethora option where the whole world exists for your satisfaction. As we saw, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, the orientation of a sexual relationship is about to be the needs of our spouse. It's a giving ethic. Our sex exists so that we can give, not so that we can take. But pornography is built with only one consumer in mind, with only one person who needs to be satisfied, with only one purpose, which is my personal pleasure. It turns, like Jonathan uh, Grant says, other people into a happiness technology. Um, C.S. Lewis here. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and turns it back. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. But notice this. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman, for the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he's always adored, 
always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. There is a narcissus hiding in our modern technology, and its name is pornography. It shapes us to see other people as primarily existing for our own sexual satisfaction. Now, we as a church should be listening very closely to things that are so broad and so spoken of like the Me Too movement. The levels of the women who testify to sexual harassment and even sexual abuse in their own life is staggering. And we would be foolish to write it off as, uh, as being unimportant. However, to not recognize the significant part that pornography has played in leading us to a Me Too world would also be foolish. And in this case, we should agree with the victims of this world and point to the true and actual killer. A software that we plug ourselves into as human beings that reshapes us in selfish sexuality. Now, C.S. Lewis talks about another moving in the wrong direction here. Um, in this one, and it's one that needs to be drawn out on our own, pornography cultivates isolation instead of relationship. Did you see, as C.S. Lewis was saying that in the opening, he's saying that sexuality's whole purpose is to draw us out from ourself, looking for completion and even correction. Um, you may remember that uh, Stanley Grenz talks about social sexuality and says our, our whole drawing to other people is a natural part of human life. And although we, we said that he was um, incorrect in labeling it social sexuality, that that brought confusion where confusion is already prevalent, it still is recognizing the fact that sexuality is a primary facet of what draws us into relationship with other people. Like I said in that same lecture, sex is the cement of society. And so it's how we define all of our relationships in life. It makes us a part of this family. Not that we have a sexual relationship with all these people, but that these relationships exist because of a sexual relationship. It's how we define race and nation. It's how we define our connection with human beings entirely. Okay? And there's a very significant and real way where sexual desire and attraction draws us out of our selfish pursuits in life and into a greater commitment to another person that leads to things that we may or may not have been dreaming about, something that makes us, uh, uh, makes us more complete because it makes us part of a community. Remember, part of our sexuality is the it is not good that man should be alone of Genesis 2. However, pornography and masturbation seeks to satisfy those desires completely apart from other in fact, from any sort of relational interaction. And again, this is more true now than it was in the days of Jesus. The imagination was just as rampant. It's the reason why those monastics who fled to the wilderness to protect themselves from sexual sins with women didn't find relief because they took all they needed with them, right? That reality, the imagination, has always been present. The heart has always been present but when you couple that with technology, you create a tremendously effective way to 
apparently, supposedly, at least in our own personal understanding, meet these needs apart from other people. In one of the books that I recommended uh, to you, Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant, uh, he has the following quote from John Mayer. Now, if you don't recognize the name, John Mayer is a pop star. Okay? He's just a celebrity. Um, but many celebrities have spoken about their own struggles with sexuality. His, I find to be uh, both vulnerable and insightful. This is what he says. He says, I'm a self-soother. The internet, DVR, Netflix, Twitter, all these things are moments in time throughout your day when you're able to soothe yourself. We have an autonomy of comfort and pleasure. By the way, pornography. You wake up in the morning, open a thumbnail page, and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals. There have probably been days when I saw 300 naked women before I got out of bed. Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I'd rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. The best days of my life are when I've dreamed about a sexual encounter with someone I've already been with. Again, we can't say that pornography satisfies our sexual desire. Instead, it enslaves it and causes us to settle for less. But once it's in place because of its convenience, because of its ease, because it asks so little of us, it moves us towards isolation. Regular porn use can make romantic relationships feel like too much work. Because sexual satisfaction is readily available without the cost of a real person and their wants and their needs. So let's, let's review all of these, and I want you to notice again that these are all right at the heart of sexuality and its design. First off, pornography uh, objectifies people instead of honoring their full personhood. Um, second, Second, it trains the brain for novelty instead of intimacy. As we saw, intimacy is at the very heart of what sex is to be about. It defines sexuality selfishly instead of around giving. It makes us and shapes us as takers sexually. Okay. And then finally, it cultivates isolation instead of relationship. When we say relationship, when we say uh, giving, when we say personhood, when we say intimacy, we are literally saying sexuality by design. Porn doesn't do any of those things. And it's not just like we talked about with uh, turning a screw with a knife blade. It's not just that it won't get the job done. It's not just that it leaves us dissatisfied and then we're in the trap, what I like to call the sinner's trap. Whereas we go to meet a need we have in a sinful way and it doesn't satisfy and for some reason we believe that that's just because we need to keep at it. So we press in deeper and further to these unsatisfying things. Um, you know, constantly assuming that there's, uh, you know, treasure at the end of the rainbow uh, or, or what we're looking for just at the end of the horizon. 
Um, but it's also something that uh, doesn't just move in the wrong direction, but it reshapes us. It directs us in the wrong way. I would suggest to you that in most marriages where there are problems, if porn is present, it is the greatest problem, even if it's not seen or known or understood. Because it is daily, liturgically, habitually reshaping the user into a different person. That's why these things are so serious. I think sometimes when we read the commands of the Bible, we see them practically as being arbitrary. Okay, so God has an opinion on this, and because I love God, I'll listen to his opinion. Um, but in actuality, the warnings that we find in Scripture are the warnings of a loving father, one who knows the design, knows what we're built for, um, and speaks strongly about the things that are most dangerous. And it is staggering how often the Bible takes the time to address sexual sin. Every book, every vice list that we looked at, at least twice on all the vice lists of the New Testament, every author of Scripture, so many bad examples presented to us, so many warnings and concerns. And it's because, again, sin is not something we do it's something that enslaves us in return. Isn't that what Jesus says? But this is how we start. We start and we make a choice with the freedom and the autonomy. We forget that we're a crea creature who owes our allegiance to our creator. And we make a choice. And we make it freely like even the garden we eat the fruit of. But pretty soon that choice makes us. And now we find ourselves ensnared and trapped by the false god that we sought to worship. Now we're enslaved to a god that is not a god, that no longer satisfies, but also demands our full attention, all the sacrifice that comes with worship, and threatens our very life. And so that makes the fight against pornography very important to talk about. And like I said, if the statistics are true, and I have no reason to believe they are not, this is a very present and serious problem inside the church and not outside the church. And it's another thing that the church has to figure out a way to navigate. And so I did want to take some time tonight and talk about the fight. And the place that you have to begin, you have to treat your sin seriously. Just after Jesus labels lust as adultery, right after that, in the following verse, this is what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Okay. Now, clearly Jesus is being hyperbolic. The problem is, sometimes we use that to explain away what Jesus is saying. That's not how hyperbole works. Uh, as C.S. Lewis points out here, a sane man does not use hyperbole to mean nothing 
by a great thing which is not literally true, he suggests a great thing which is. Right? We make an extreme illustration, not because the thing is no big deal, but because it is a big deal. And we're looking for a parallel. That's how hyperbole works. As we've seen, like Jesus talks about in the heart, lust, pornography, may be the beginning of a journey, but we have to recognize where the road goes and be drastic in our handling of it. Sometimes, sin can become so ensnaring and so enchaining in our life. Yes, we're driving on a road and we haven't arrived at the destination, but it feels like the bank on both sides is six feet high and the car can't turn in either direction. There's a moment in a George MacDonald book, I believe it's in Sir Gibby, where a woman who has been um, a bartender for years and has never drank herself and is always justified as a Christian her having of a bar because at least she can watch over these men and make sure things don't get too bad. At least she can provide them a safe place to drink. And she lives in this and she does this for a long time. But there comes a point in her life where things get really hard where her family life gets hard and falls away, where her business starts to waver in these types of things. And one night, just out of despair, she turns to alcohol. And she gets addicted. And more and more of her life is consumed in drinking, and she hides it from her patrons, and she does it privately. And one night, she's got the bottle in hand, and she puts it to her lips, and she hears the voice of God say, one more drink, and you are damned. Now, if you know George MacDonald, this is such a surprising statement. It's such an out-of-character thing. It, it, was a, it was a spot for me to stop and reflect. But what I, what I think George MacDonald understands is the seriousness of sin. It's not like God has some sort of measurement and he's filling in every ounce on the diagram and it's like, boy, you're just about to the mark, right? That's not what he means. He's recognizing the fact that the more we participate and choose something, the less likely we are to be able to let it go. And so the fact is, and she, she's not going to die in the next drink, but she's coming close to the point of no return. And let me remind you that in other people's lives, you don't know where that line is. And so we don't give up on people. But we do believe that God knows. He's gracious, merciful, all-knowing, and just. God knows where that line is. But what McDonald is really talking about is the seriousness of sin. If you want to see this in another place besides here in Matthew, uh, consider Proverbs chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple. I perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, 
colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home with much seductive speech. She persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let your heart not turn aside to her ways. Do not stray in her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is in the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. One of the most insightful fictional works on worship that I've read uh, is not by a Christian, uh, but by a British author by the name of Neil Gaiman. Uh, and he wrote a book years and years ago called American Gods. And in it, he suggests a battle between the gods of the old world, the ones that our immigrant parents worshipped before they came to America, and the new gods of America, which includes technology uh, and sex. And there's an occasion in that book where the goddess sex meets with a man in a hotel room and devours him vaginally. And it is so disturbing. But that's what Proverbs is getting at. Okay, at the, the powerful, destructive nature of sexuality uh, and how it can devour. Okay. And so Jesus is serious and he says, better to lose your right hand and not get off the rope. That's how serious he is. Now, obviously, how is this practically applied? You have to be willing to uproot the tools and habits that enable your beauty. We could easily read, couldn't we? If your iPhone causes you to sin, throw it out. It's a clear application of what Jesus is talking about, okay? We should begin by moving our battle into a battle strategically, a field that we could actually win. Okay. Now, obviously, it is very difficult to do that without going public. Right. And that's part of it because one of the great habits that enables a pornographic addiction is the hiddenness of it. Um, but we need to be serious and we need to weigh our actions. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people and they're like, but I need this for work, blah, 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 blah. You know, the library has computers. There's all sorts of ways, but what Jesus is talking about here, we could easily say, but I need my hand for work. But I'm pretty partial to my right eye and people will notice if it's gone. That's the whole point. He's talking about drastic measures. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second, Handle your temptation biblically. Okay? Whereas this is talking about not in the heat of battle. Whereas uh, being serious with sin and making decisions that uh, hamper your ability to continue bad habits uh, happens away from the heat of the moment, happens when you're you know, grieving and conscious and open and aware. When you're in the moment of temptation, you also need to handle that biblically. Look at the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now notice what this is. Paul is combating how we feel when we're tempted with the real truths. Okay, so don't believe the lies. First off, you're not the only one. Right, that's how he opens here. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Okay, like most sinful habits, porn is nurtured and nursed by shame. Do you see how that's a self-fulfilling problem? How it perpetuates a cycle? In fact, have you seen the new studies coming out these years that are saying the most significant facet that may lead to real addiction is isolation? We as Christians should be going, well, yeah, we've known that from the beginning, okay? But, but we have to start here and say what I'm facing right now is not abnormal to human beings. Temptation nor, neither makes you a monster nor requires that you're a superhuman to resist it. Second, you are not alone, okay? God is seen here as present, even faithful, right in the midst of our temptation. Third, the temptation isn't unbearable. But I want you to notice how he finishes this. He says, uh, he provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or if you have an older translation, endure up under it. Okay? He doesn't provide a way of escape so you, that you'll no longer be tempted, but that so, so that you won't give in to temptation. That difference, that distinction is tremendously important. But that's how we often feel when we struggle very deeply with things. And it doesn't matter if it's porn or anger. We think, I, I just can't. I can't stop it. It's unbearable. The easiest way for me to stop it is just to give in. And then obviously here the application is to take the way of escape. He says here it's there. God always provides a way of escape. But here is what I've learned about this in my own temptations in my own life. Please recognize that God's provided way of escape is probably earlier than you think it is. What I'm suggesting is sometimes the inevitability of our temptation comes from the fact that we skipped the off-ramp and thought, oh, I can make it another exit. Right? We get a prompt about something relatively minor in our spirit, and we go, no, I'm fine. We think to, to ourselves, should I get that hotel room all by myself while I'm out of town this weekend? Yeah, it'll be fine. That's the way of escape. It's all the way up in front of the temptation we have to learn how to basically assume that God knows better and that the Holy Spirit is our helper. We have to come to the place where we're willing to, uh, again, to do drastic measures that get off earlier. I think I've mentioned him before, but I have a friend who was a chronic liar. And things got really bad. He was dating, uh, he was dating another friend of mine, uh, and he... he lied so much that he built up this false life that he had a job that he didn't have that his family situation was different that his wealth situation was different and the thing about lies is when you when you weave a whole bunch of them together it becomes very hard to maintain and eventually he got caught in his lie and his whole life crumbled down okay his whole reputation with all of his peers his reputation with his pastors his relationship with his girlfriend it all ended and i was talking to him a few weeks after and one of the first things he told me was how freed he felt in this exposure. It was hard, it was shameful, it was embarrassing, it ruined his life, 
but he wasn't juggling the lies anymore, and that was freedom. And I said, but you've been doing this for so long. It's so natural for you. It's so instinctual. How do you protect yourself from rebuilding this whole web of lies? And he said, I blurt out the truth. He says, anytime I find myself having a decision where I can go one way or the other, I, as fast as I can, get the truth on the table. That's what Paul is talking about here with the way of escape. It's not, maybe I should get off the freeway. It's not, I'm going to put on my blinker and see if this guy will let me over. Okay. It is drastic measure exiting. Okay. okay, third, don't forget to complete your putting off by putting on. Here's what I mean. Here he says, but we as Christians, this isn't the way we learned Christ, assuming that we've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is into Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying there's an old way of life. There's the old man. There's your natural predisposition. There's the flesh. And then there's the new way in Christ. And notice here that the putting off is incomplete without the putting on. In the same way that you taking off your pajamas in the morning isn't a done job until you put on your clothes for the day. So it's put off and then through the renewing of your mind, put on. What I'm suggesting to you is we're not done being righteous or holy if we just avoid sin. Because every sin is a failure to do the right thing, not just a succeeding to do the wrong thing. Okay? So for example, notice what he says here. Therefore, having put away, put off falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. If you just bite your tongue and say nothing, you have not fulfilled the putting on of your identity in Jesus Christ. The goal of not lying is honesty. Okay. Um, and then notice, just a side note here, this is one of the places where we get the renewing of the mind. Put off, renew your mind, put on. What is the renewing of the mind? Why would you lie to your own body? Everybody in this church is in the same situation as you, is only here because they're connected to the same Savior you have. It doesn't make any sense to lie to one another, not if we're members of one another. Okay. Um, so what I'm suggesting to you is that we need to think of these things not only as a negative, stop doing, but a positive, start doing. Okay. So what is the put on for the porn viewer? It's right relationships with the opposite sex. See, here's the thing. This is the Achilles heels in most men, in particular, fight with sexuality. They add avoiding pornography, and then they couple it with avoiding women. But a good deal of the reason why we are drawn to pornography is because we have natural and good needs that only women can meet. And not all of those are sexual. Like we've talked about, all men need women. All women need men. That's the way you were designed. You were incomplete without those relationships. I would suggest to you that the verse that nails this down, okay, it's the reason why, I mean, there's other reasons why the Bible doesn't say just don't use porn, but, oh, actually, let's look at this example with put off and put on, because this is a good one, too. Okay, so we talked about lying in truth. Look at this one. 
let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He doesn't just say, stop stealing, you're a Christian now. He says, work hard so that you have something so you can be generous. Don't just put off, put on. So the putting on here is right relationships with the opposite sex. This is not the one I want, um, but I do have this one in my paper. Consider 1 Timothy 4, 2. Remember Paul's advice to Timothy? Treat everyone like family. What does he say he's to treat the young women like? Like sisters in all purity. That's the put on. And so I know it seems a little counterintuitive, um, but you have to renew your mind and say, look, these people that I'm tempted by are created in the image of God, worthy of love. Some of the needs that I have are natural needs for other relationships in my life. And then you have to go out and be a good relationship, be a person, treat them as sisters in all purity, develop friendships with others with no sexual or romantic goals whatsoever. And when you do that, like I said, you begin to meet some of these needs and bring satisfaction and, and change the way, but you also fulfill what the gospel is calling you to, which is not just to stop looking at that, but to love your neighbor. Okay. Uh, don't just put off, but put on. Uh, next, bring it into the light. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So John's great command here is that we as Christians should walk in the light. Now here's the problem. A lot of us, when we hear that, when we think that, we think that means walk righteously. But that doesn't even fit with the other commands that are given here. He says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. The idea here isn't that we need to walk in perfection. It's that we need to walk in authenticity. We have to actually be visible in the light, exposed, is the idea of light here. That's why confession is such a significant part of it. Like I mentioned earlier, isolation is something that has a tendency to perpetuate our addictions. Uh, sin and secrecy go hand in hand and sometimes what we need is the freedom of it being out in the light and of course that begins first and foremost with being honest with God which means not coming to him with vows and promises and saying look I know I know I haven't figured this out yet but I'm going to get this nailed down or thinking that you can't come to God until you get yourself straightened out we always come to Christ in our need as sinners in need of cleansing that's fine. 
That's why we boldly enter into the throne room of grace. That's by design. But you don't come in making promises or having your own plan of salvation. You come to the fountain for cleansing. You know, I love um, Martin Luther famously and sometimes misunderstandingly, uh, or it, sometimes it's misunderstood, called Christians to sin boldly, but to pursue grace more boldly. And his point wasn't have all the evil you can in your life so you can have a deeper experience of God. If you read it in the context, it was don't be ashamed of the fact that you're a sinner. God knows that, and that's why he came for you. Own up to who you really are. He goes on and he says, Jesus isn't interested in hypothetical sinners, but real ones. Okay, and so, but it also means, uh, walking in the light also means accountability. Exposing ourselves to other people. And you go, well, can't I just confess my sins privately? You can, but there's something that's significant about the body of Christ which is that when you allow the body of Christ to be the body of Christ and they remind you of your forgiveness, it hits you. You hear it with your ears, right? It's not just your mind making some sort of positive play. It is the word of Christ through the mouth of a brother saying your sins are forgiven. When they embrace you, when they weep with you, it brings the presence of Christ into the tangibility, which again is a significant part of who you are. Accountability is not, uh, is not uh, about um, merely just calling someone when you mess up. It's about calling someone when you're tempted. In fact, sometimes it's that way of escape. Uh, it's not about just calling someone because you're struggling with sin. It's about living life together to pursue the putting on that's involved, chasing passionately after Christ. All of these things are important, but if you just do these and you, do the, you don't do the last one, um, then it comes up being a sub-Christian attempt to change morally. And so the last thing you have to do is you have to preach the gospel to yourself. This is from a unpublished interview of Timothy Keller's, and yes, I'm that cool that I have this in my library. But this is what he says. He says, you know what? In some ways, he's talking about a person who's struggling with sexual sin and porn in particular. In some ways, you have an advantage. Everybody puts something in the place of God in their life. Everybody's got something that they look to instead of God for real salvation. Pornography is a nice, easy one to identify. The fact of the matter is there's no getting out of any sin that is easy. Pornography is no harder or easier than anything else. What about Phariseeism? What about self-righteousness? What about a sense that God is so pleased with me because I'm so doctrinally sound and I'm so absolutely a good person? I know I'm saved by grace, but actually deep down, I know I'm saved by being such a pillar of the church. Now, Phariseeism makes the world very, very miserable. Phariseeism can actually send you to hell thinking you were a Christian because you're actually not trusting in Christ to save you. You're trusting in yourself. Phariseeism can kill marriages. It's not the same as pornography, but the fact is it's harder to see. But it's really no less difficult to shake. All sin is difficult to shake. The advantage of, as I've always said, the advantage of sexual addiction is it's just when you're falling back into it, you know you're right back into it. 
I mean, it's just so obvious, but the fact is more subtle kinds of sins and the more subtle and difficult to identify kinds of addictions like idolatry and pseudo-salvations, which can destroy you as well, are really no easier to break. In fact, some ways they're harder than pornography because they are so subtle. Why is it that Jesus so naturally comforts the sinners and confronts the religious elite? Why do we only see him angry and railing and calling for woes on the Pharisees? And yet he says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you. It's because the Pharisees can't see the problem. Their need for Jesus is hidden. The woman knows it. She's laying there. She needs him fully. She needs him totally. The sinners heard him gladly. The Pharisees didn't need Jesus. You know the way I always think of it? It's like if an artist had been making art for years and years and years and had become just super famous and well-respected. But he realized in doing so that he'd become completely uh, unaccessible to the average person. And he wanted to make a piece of art that was specifically for them. And so he makes a piece of art that the only way it can be seen and understood is with a special pair of glasses. And he has a bucket of those glasses next to the art, and it says, if anyone needs help understanding this, just ask. And the attendant at the painting is is there, and if he hears someone ask, he gives them the glasses. What's going to happen with the art critic? They're not going to ask, are they? They don't need help understanding this. This is what they do for a living. But God has designed the gospel in such a way that we have to ask. And Jesus is so loud and so angry with the religious leaders in the same way we are when somebody doesn't realize they're just about to walk into a tree. It's not because their sin is more harmful, although it can be. It's because their sin is more hidden, which is actually also what makes it more harmful. God has demonstrated his goodness to you in the cross so you can trust him with your sexual desires. You can trust that he has your best interest in mind when he calls you out of the darkness of pornography and into right and appropriate relationships. As the Journal of Biblical Counseling says here, the most damaging effect of pornography is that it creates a rift in a man's relationship with God. A man who regularly violates God's boundaries for sex by using pornography is estranged from him. Somewhere along the way, he's come to live as if God has not provided what he really needs regarding sex. So he provides it for himself. Even if he feels guilty and is trying desperately to stop, his behavior shows that the good gifts of God in his life are not enough and that happiness requires something more. It is the most basic and pernicious deception of pornography, the implicit belief that God is withholding something good. That's not just the uh, um, pernicious deception of pornography. That's the pernicious deception of sin. Isn't that the doubt that the serpent puts in Eve's mind? God doesn't really have your best interest in mind. He's really hiding something from you that would really be good for you. Nothing protects us from temptation like enjoying and rejoicing in the goodness of God. And that means regularly and diligently preaching the gospel to you, to yourself. 
Like Paul says in Romans, if God has given us his own son, how will he not freely give us all good things? Christ died for your lustful desires, which is sobering because Jesus had to die, endure the full reality of the wrath of God because of our sin. But it's also assuring because Jesus was willing to die. He did so freely and lovingly. Underlying all of our desires for satisfaction, including this one, is a desire that only God can be filled, or only God can fill, which means learn to be satisfied in Him. There is no putting off sexual desire, especially if you're single, but even within marriage. There's no putting off sexual sin until you get to the full putting on on the intimacy that God desires to have with you in Jesus Christ. So we have to re-educate ourselves, our habits, our lives to find our satisfaction in the one who truly satisfies, to turn away from our broken cisterns that can hold no water and go right to the fountain of living water, like it says in Jeremiah chapter 2. Often, pornography isn't even about sexual desire. A lot of times it's a form of self-medicating. It's a way that we nurse rejection. It's a way that we seek comfort or escape when we're stressed. It's venting anger at others or God. That same article that I mentioned from the Journal of Biblical Counseling, he's interviewing a guy who's struggling with pornography. And he says, is there any consistency to when you're tempted to view pornography? And he said, oh, that's easy, Friday night. And he said, Friday night, why? And he's like, well, I'm in my 30s and I'm single. And I get home on Friday and I know all my friends are out on dates and these types of things. And I get angry. And porn is my way of revenge on God for not taking care of me. And he said, do you realize how significant those words are? That is the heart of the battle. I am a comfort-oriented person. Oriented person. I resonate with what John Mayer said when he's a self-soother. Okay. When life gets hard, I retreat to Thai food and Pink Floyd. And I do it consistently. The thing is, those things, and it doesn't matter if they're sinful things or very normal things, but it might just put a little bit of extra weight on my body. The thing is, um, they don't bring me satisfaction. They just put the pain on hold. But the truth is, I believe in a God who's so good and so living that I can actually find what I'm looking for. But I don't go to him. In the Psalms, we see people coping with all of the difficulties of life, defeat, depression, disappointment, discouragement, anger, fear, worry, all the things that exist in our life. But they don't turn to porn, they turn to the one true refuge. And when they struggle to turn to that one true refuge, they work at it, right? Psalm 42, why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones' words about that. He says, we as human beings spend way too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time preaching to ourselves. But the Psalms are given to you as not just an example of how to find what you're looking for in God, but as a method of doing so. It's not the prayers and songs of other people. It's the prayers and songs for you to enter into and look at those emotions are full bore, real, and all on display. 
you want walk in the light, read the Psalms. It's not some sort of timid and limited, you know, behave yourself so God will give you what you need. It's where you really are brought into the presence of God for help. And that means, uh, you know, that means it's okay to be desperate. That means it's okay to be here again. One last nerdy reference for the night, and then we'll take a break. My all-time favorite episode of Doctor Who involves a situation where the doctor is continuously being killed and reborn in the same circumstances. He's fully aware, but he can't get out of this loop, and it's just going on. And he realizes that what he needs to get out is on the other side of a 30-foot deep piece of crystal. And so once he finally figures this out and has figured everything that's going on, he spends all of his time banging his fist against this crystal wall. And he's at it for thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations, but eventually he gets through the wall. But the great thing about that is, you know, the, the change in that wall is imperceptible. It doesn't mean it's not real. And God hasn't asked us to arrive He's asked us to strive towards the upward calling. And I just want to remind you one last time that victory in the Christian life is not defined by a lack of fighting. It's defined by continuing to fight. And that's because we believe that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient, that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, that his grace is inexhaustible, that his wisdom is rich in its depth, Let me add one last thing. Remember that when we look at our own lives through God's eyes, he looks at where we are. He doesn't measure all human beings across history as if lives are all the same. The thing is, in sexual issues, the deck is so stacked against us. But that's the game we're playing. Don't worry about thinking, you know, how you would do in five-card draw. The game you're playing is stud. It's fine. The judge knows it. It's part of the plan. And again, what he's looking for here is not, not about you overcoming your sin as much as it is about you becoming an overcomer. All right, let's pray and take a break. Father, it's pretty easy to illustrate the seriousness of these things from our own life, from our own culture, from the stories we hear from broken marriages, from what we see in our children and what's happening at school and, and all of those things. And that does make us desperate. It makes us long for you to bring about a revival that would bring freedom in these things. But at the same time, Lord, we trust we trust your goodness and your sovereignty, that you are just as much alive as you were yesterday or five years ago or 500 years ago. And I pray, Lord, that you would provide for us a deeper understanding, a fuller satisfaction, that our argument on pornography would ultimately be taste and see that the Lord is good.
drink deeply from the well. Because Jesus says, all of you who thirst, come to me and be satisfied. Help us with that, Lord, for anyone who's struggling with this, whether it's known or hidden. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them, even tonight, to take a step, drastic as it may be, public and as embarrassing as it may be, Lord, to invite you back in and believe that you're big enough to work in this place and that your grace is deep enough to meet them right where they are. Let us never live, Lord, with this estrangement from the God who not only longs to be combined with us, longs to be in, in relationship with us, but has done everything necessary to make that possible. We thank you that you're that type of God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is 8.19. Uh, we're going to finish tonight. We've got about 25 minutes for any questions you may have. Uh, of course, questions on tonight's lecture would be uh, would be okay, but but so would anything we've covered in the class or or anything that touches these issues that you're you're thinking through in your own life that you want to talk further about. Who has a question? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so in fact, that's that's a good time to say so. A relatively close equivalent to what we've done for the last 10 weeks I have recorded. Uh, it's audio over slides. Um, and so it has this material and then just me talking over the top of it. Um, and so I have a, a link available to that. Uh, I, I can't think of a better way to get it to you guys than, than just to email it to uh, Jen, the secretary here. Um, if, if you don't attend this church and you need it, then I can, I can text it to you or email it to you. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to send it right now um, so that you know that it's there. Um, and the only downside to this particular version of the lectures is the second half of the first gender lecture is just missing. So that one's been lost to time. Um, but we got a good recording of that one here, I believe, if you need that. Um, Laura, I saw that you had a question. So oftentimes, well, mostly, when I've heard people talk about pornography and uh, the consumption of it, it's always uh, talking about the men. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, because I don't have any ex experience with my friends and talking about this, but ha have you had to talk with women who struggle with the consumption of pornography and how is it different for them and how do right. they fall into it differently than men do? Yeah, so let's just talk broadly statistically. Um, uh, statistically, what we can say right now is that it is no longer primarily a male problem. Um, statistically, it is still more men than women, but the thing that's disturbing is how quickly the women are gaining. Um, it's becoming such a present part of, of younger generations' lives that we're, we're seeing these things grow um, pretty significantly. Um, I, I would suggest that, um, that there would definitely be some engendered uh, differences to those things. 
um, and the statistics seem to bear that up. Um, but ultimately, the broad solution is the same in mirror image, you know. And so, um, uh, good community with other women, which also means, and this is a real struggle for uh, women in the past who have dealt with uh, any form of sexual addiction, it's, it's harder to own up to that publicly. Um, it's not as acceptable, you know. There's still sometimes this boys will be boys mentality that at least makes it possible that it's going to come up at youth group in your small group. Um, but if you're a woman, it, it carries a different, uh, a different thing. But ultimately, um, uh, women who are, uh, who are in community together and understand one another and facing, th facing the issue together, um, I think is, is generally, uh, generally a significant start and those, those differences, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, one, we're all humans, uh, two, we come in two different models, male and female, and then three, we're all unique individuals, you know, and so I think we've all had that experience where sometimes things feel like we're in the general category and we resonate with everybody and then the ones where we feel just completely alone or it's like, I just don't relate to that at all. For me, it's about this. But those conversations, that's a significant part of dealing with these issues. That when we use a w the word support, that's what we mean, is a place where you can actually talk around the angles of your own struggle and things. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is um, uh, the church has to effectively um, normalize not the sin but the dealing with the sin and have avenues where where just like anything else it's okay to deal with these things I said the same thing about um, about uh, same-sex attractive people in our midst they need a way to follow Jesus with room to follow Jesus accepted in the church um, and good support to do so with understanding of the particulars of their situation a question that I will try to not ramble um, about how to frame. Uh, it, it's involving one of my roommates, and we we weren't we weren't friends prior to being roommates. We've been roommates for about a year, and she she's a really she's a really sweet person. I know that she is, and but so when we first when I first moved in, she was doing yoga. She was very health conscious. And over the course of this time, she has moved, she, she has, she was already doing uh, the webcam work within this, within pornography, this industry. And I feel guilty because when she came to me about this decision that I'm about to say, I, I like to be supportive of people. She went into stripping. Mm -hmm. She went into adult dancing. And... It has just her. It's just declined so much. I mean, she's she's now, um, she's now prostituting. She's doing heavy drugs now. She won't speak to me at all because I've and I'm no longer supportive of this <laughs> at all. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing empowering about this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I've been trying. And I've also been noticing recently. I've been you know I can I can hear her, our rooms are next to each other. I can hear her when she's cutting up her drugs. I mean, I know what's going on. And mm -hmm. and so I'm trying to not be judgmental. 
but I, but I don't, the path that she's going down is not a good one, and it's not one that she's open to. Uh, I've voiced how I feel about it, and she's right. not. Yeah, so right. I'm not sure how to handle it in a yeah. way that is actually constructive and not just is because right now she's just frozen me off. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice? Uh, yeah, two Thanks. two things come to mind. Um, one is, I would guess um, where she's at right now whether she's willing to admit it to you or not, she's fully acquainted with um, the negative consequences of this whole path. Um, you said that this is no longer empowering. I bet she knows it. You know, the, the thing that we always have working with us when, when we deal with sin is people's own conviction and then the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is not just something for Christians on the inside, but on the outside, the Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so, so very rarely is it our goal to demonstrate to someone they're a sinner. Um, uh, and so, you know, one of the things I think you can do, and I heard it even in your voice, your actual emotional concern for your roommate, um, is, is you can come on that edge, and you don't have to provide the interpretation. You can just say, hey, look, I've known you for a year, and it just seems like, uh, like you're having a really hard time. You know? And you don't have to be more specific than that. You can just find a way to let her open herself up, and, and, and that may give you the opportunity to connect the dots you know, and just say, you know, it, it seems to me like these are the things that are going on. Is this even what you want? Is this where you want to be? Um, and the other thing I would suggest is, um, you know, um, we live in a world that sees confrontation primarily as an expression of hatred uh, or, or disowning or distancing or these types of things. Um, but confrontation actually uh, lives in the world of love. It doesn't mean we always confront lovingly, but the primary motivation, the field that it exists in, uh, is love. C.S. Lewis says that's the difference between kindness and love. Kindness just wants the pain to stop. Love wants what's best for the other person, and that requires sometimes pain. Um, um, but, but what's been helpful to me in a world that's so anti-confrontation um, in recognizing that it's sometimes loving is to realize that proper loving confrontation is always vulnerable. The ministry of a prophet, for example, in the Bible is a vulnerable one. You're actually risking your relationship, sometimes your own well-being, to speak the truth. Um, and there are ways to do that uh, where, where your vulnerability is visible. In fact, I would suggest to you that the way that the church often goes around confrontation wrongly is that we try and do it without any vulnerability. And so, you know, we hide behind the berm and, and lob complaints across a distance so that we're away from the explosion area um, or we um, we use trite expressions because we don't actually want to meet people in the pain we just want to get rid of the pain and so we do the same thing at funerals we have all these things we say at funerals so we don't have to talk about death right um, but real confrontation is is vulnerable it, it enters in it shares the pain it offers to bear the pain and then it, it enters into recognizing that if the person doesn't respond well, that you, you're left with the pain, right? You don't escape it. No prophet in the Bible outside of Jonah, and he's a bad example, dusts off his fingers and says, good riddance, right? 
Um, instead, you have to now live with the reality of walking the, watching them walk out what you know is going to happen next, you know, um, which is a, is a painful and grievous thing. And so, in summary, the, the two things I would suggest is, is, one, if you can get her just to open up on how she's actually doing, um, you know, then, then there may not be a need for you to provide your opinion. Um, you can just provide your help. Um, and then two, uh, recognize that, uh, that, this, that love takes time to express concern. And you can do it in a way that remains loving, but it means entering into the pain, you know. And so, um, there there are other things related here. You know, it may be um, that the possibility of you guys living together is coming to an end. Um, but in that case, it still has to be to exit in the right way, and not just to disappear to keep you from the consequences. You know, Jesus enters into our suffering, enters into our sin problem. Um, and it costs him very dearly, and that's the definition biblically of love. So, yeah, I hope that's helpful. Other questions? Yeah, Heidi. Um, last week you said a woman. Last week you said a woman um, can do anything in ministry that an unordained man can do. Right. And and then you said you mentioned that you realized you you felt you were being sexist because you were allowing unordained men to teach on Sundays? Yes. So do you only allow now ordained people to come and speak when That's you're not right. available? Uh, in fact, I'm so rigid on this, we don't do guest speaking on Sunday mornings. Um, for us, again, the sermon on Sunday morning is a weekly ministry of our pastoral team. It is a local church issue. And so we, we will gladly, uh, again, have women or missionaries or anyone else share on a Sunday morning uh, or set up a completely different setup for them to do so. Um, but, but going back just uh, to, to that Kathy Keller quote that a woman can do anything an unordained man can do, that hinges very much on how ordination works. Right, it's it's a contextual statement. It's very easy for her to say in a Presbyterian world, which is where she comes from, because ordination is so clear. Um, we tend to be more casual in Calvary Chapel, and so that may not be a good litmus test in every church. Um, but but for us, because of the way our church is shaped and how how we explain what it is we're doing, um, it's one that that services pretty well. Uh, just by way of illustration, it's a similar benefit that membership can provide. Uh, membership can be wrong for a thousand reasons, and obviously we come from an American history of denominationalism where membership is ultimately about I'm not one of them than it is about whatever it means in this context. However, one of the great things about membership is it can draw a clear line that answers all questions evenly. And so instead of hodgepodge dealing with issues and being inconsistent because you don't make the same demands of this issue as you do of that issue, for example, take the lesbian couple that's visiting your church. Membership allows you a way to be clear. Ordination should do the same thing. Uh, and so I don't know if that idea would be as important to me 150 years ago on another continent. Um, but where we are in our church, it's been, it's been very helpful to me. Other questions? Yes, other Heidi. 
Okay, so I have a multitude of questions, but so I don't um, steal the floor. I'll probably be emailing you mm -hmm. a couple. So I think the, the place I really want to start, I shared with you about my niece and how now she is a lesbian. I also have a nephew on my husband's side who the way I met him was he was in a coma having jumped off of the Aurora Bridge. Mm. He's been gay since I guess he was little and it had a starting point because he had things happen in his life that formulated that for him. And so I guess the place I always start is trying to understand, right? Because mm -hmm. now I've got these two people I'm relating to and um, the nephew had disappeared um, after getting better and he didn't want anything to do with us because we were kind of part of that pain just by visiting him in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now he's emailing us a lot and he's doing really well with um, AA and he's you know in a positive place but I still don't really have the ability to interact with him about deep issues. It's like, this is so great that, you know, you're doing well. So, so trying to understand, um, like, what is really going on in our culture? Do we have a lot of rebellion? Do we have confusion? Do we have people who maybe always thought they were gay and are now kind of finding it's a popular thing to be that or to say that or to um, just pick a side and be an activist right. because that's what we do. Like what, because it's so like big right now and I'm trying to help my daughter navigate, right, yeah. as she grows. So, so what is it? Yeah, um, culture is always a very hard thing to measure in terms of cause and effect. And one of the reasons is just the outright size of it. Um, and, and the other has to do with the fact that um, at best, we usually look back you know, one, one loop, but, but there's momentum. And so we have a hard time seeing what lies behind the determining factors of, of yesterday is a whole week of determining factors before that. Um, there are, I think, some significant things, and, and first off, and, and this is actually one of the great benefits of our day and age, um, we are definitely, uh, we can definitely no longer see same-sex attraction um, as being non-existent or new. Um, you know, now that there's a possibility of actually talking about these things, we're blowing dust off the history books of, of artists and writers and, and government officials for, for all of American history, most of European history, all the way through, and we're finding all these things that we didn't really want to own up to that are there. This has been a, um, a continual and persistent part of human communities. Um, however, uh, I think there is a lot of, uh, a lot of exacerbating realities um, that are both making the real issues more high stakes and adding beyond the real issues unreal components. You know, I always think of um, uh, when, when ADD and then ADHD became a common diagnosis, we all kind of understand there was an over-medicated reality. It's not that those things weren't real, but it became an easy and quick answer for people who didn't deal with those conditions. And similar to these things, 
um, it's, it's, it's either something that requires a self-diagnosis uh, or, or just putting together like a syndrome, the outside. You can't just take a blood test and it's the same on this issue. Um, so I think those components are, are going on as well. You know, um, the new move towards identity politics, which again, if we're gonna go back, is really just the final conclusion of the American endeavor. When we started with this whole life built on, on independence and freedom, um, uh, it's, it's read, led very naturally to these places, but one of the problems with identity politics um, is it doesn't focus on commonalities, but on differences. It's built on that. Um, it, there's a, there's a book I'm not gonna remember the name of that makes this case really well from a, uh, a liberal Democrat um, who, who feels like basically identity politics has ruined his party. Um, and what he argues is, is the concept of citizen no longer rings true in a way that leads things together. And so instead we get intersectionality. And intersectionality says you can't understand, uh, you can't understand my issues as a feminist lesbian unless you also recognize that I'm black and that complicates things, right? And so what it means is there's, there's a fragmentation that's going on. Um, and, and that clearly is a part politically broadly of this problem um, because it's, uh, it's forcing the hand of these issues to the front stage. Did any of you watch the LGBT democratic debate? Am I the only one? Um, again, I've mentioned Katie Herzog before who writes for The Stranger. If you can find it, you should read her article about that. And basically she says as a lesbian that it was a terrible idea because you had a room of 10 politicians trying to distinguish themselves from a whole group of people who generally agree uh, and, and therefore the best they could do, in her words, was pander. Um, because they're trying to all be the progressive you know, representative. Um, that all comes to these problems and it, and it makes these issues harder to deal with. Um, however, it's important to recognize, again, that the church has a significant hand in this, both in the last couple of generations um, uh, and in the way that we responded to these things. You know, when I've talked with men and women who have grown up in the church, almost all of them have addressed this issue with another Christian while they were young. And almost all of them have the same stories of basically annoy, uh, avoiding or ignoring the issue of, of saying that that just can't be the case or of just saying just you'll outgrow it or get married, it'll be fine. There was no venue of possibility for them to even exist within the church. And so the choice was you aren't who you say you are or there's no place for you here, even though the second one was never said. Um, and, and going back even further, like I've talked about in this class, this whole idea of being shaped by our internal desires and that trumping um, external things, this is all stuff that, that Christians have been integrating into our own way of thinking forever. You know, um, I know none of us would confess to being Americans first and Christians second, but that's where we are culturally.
And so that means that our view of freedom and rights. Did you know the New Testament only mentions one right you have as a human being? The right to become the child of God. And even that one you only have because of what Jesus did, not because you're, you know, a human being. Um, but, but all of these things we've integrated, and what's happened is this generation in particular has taken us to our logical next steps. And it's been enough to show that our foundations are off and we've called foul. But they've said, we're the ones being consistent. Um, and, and so I, I know that's kind of a whole bunch of pieces. I don't think it can be diagnosed. There's people who have tried to, um, tried to do so. But again, when we look back even at the Roman world that the early church functioned in, we find a lot more in common than we do differently. We find a lot more of these realities and, uh, and the aggressiveness of these issues than now. Um, uh, and yet that's a place where, where Christianity brought health and thrived. Tertullian says of the church, um, they share everything but their wives. That was the thing that made the whole world scratch their head and attracted them to Christianity, was their sexual ethic and their economic shame. Um, we can do that again. And, and that's what makes what we're doing here so important. You know, sometimes we don't have to know what's going wrong as long as we can answer what went wrong and how do we fix it. And, uh, and again, I would encourage you to see this time uh, not as being a curse or a danger, but a tremendous opportunity. Um, because we are well equipped for this. And revival, as it's happened in history, is just another word for repentance at a broad level. Repentance within the church, not without. That's where revival begins, right? Revival doesn't start on a street corner. It starts in a Christian. And usually it starts in a group of Christians and then it overflows into the world. Um, and, and that's the thing is if we can remember the goodness of sexuality and God's design and live it out in a way that is, uh, is tangible and attractive, the rest of the narrative writes itself. And in some places this is even happening you know, and has always happened. And for as many people who have left the church over these issues, there's a ton of people coming into the church right now over just these issues. A pastor friend of mine is a pastor in LA. He was known for, for seeing a lot of fruit in the LGBT community becoming Christians. In fact, uh, just recently on a national blog of Christian Matters, they were talking about a conversion in this church of a gay guy who just wrote a book. Um, and I was sitting with a pastor in a car and I just said, I'm, I'm in Capitol Hill. You know, I was there for a year. That's all I'd been there. I said, how is this happening in your church? And he said, we just wait until the LGBT community takes out the trash and then we love them. He says it is the most aggressive and harmful and difficult community and they eat their own alive and we just, we're just there and ready and willing to pick them up. So, yeah. Any other questions? I, I'm surprised we didn't get one. I, I really want to visit this. Uh, what do we do for our children Let me just tell you this, right now the solutions are poor, and the scary thing is that adults don't know it, okay? Uh, I, am, I am in that tiny little niche between Gen X and Millennial. It's just a five-year little window. 
where I grew up before cell phones were a thing, but early enough that it's always been a part of my life, I can see both sides of these things. Um, and so, so what that means is um, I have been hunting for years for ways to do this. And why does it matter? Okay, first off, studies show that if you can keep your kids from pornography until they're 20, the possibility of them becoming addicted to it goes way down. Okay, and so, so this isn't protect them from the world out there. This is protect them because they are children with plastic brains that are still growing, okay? Um, and so that's, that's really important. But you need to recognize um, uh, that any kid can, can access pornographic material on their Xbox. And so if you don't get into the, uh, the controls and lock it down, it's right there for the taking. It's, it's really easy and visible. It's not a game they're buying. That's not what it is. It's connected to the Internet. Okay? Um, in five years, I'll be saying the same thing about refrigerators. If it connects to the internet, you need to look into parental controls, okay? Um, there are some really good services out there that I really like. Disney picked up a company a while ago called Circle, and it's protection at the Wi-Fi level, meaning any device that connects to the Wi-Fi, it provides a content filter for. It's pretty good. The only problem is you turn the Wi-Fi off on your cell phone and you're still connected to the internet. So they do have a solution for that, um, but it's a, it's a wobbly and it's a difficult one. In my household, uh, I have built something piecemeal uh, with a whole bunch of pieces to make this work. Um, and to this day, I'm still testing it and finding holes in it, okay? Because our government for decades has seen pornography as a free speech issue, which is not their fault. It's been hoisted upon them. Um, it's made it impossible to just put all of it under, for example, one address. So it was instead of .com, .xxx. And then we could just close the door and penalize people who had it outside of that realm. We don't have that option because of freedom of speech, and that's what makes this hard because it's constantly evolving. You know, every, every app that you lock down, another one is going to show, and who's going to know about it first? Your super hip children, okay? And so it requires constant vigilance. Uh, it also requires talking more than you think, okay? Our general way of handling sexuality as a church has been to not talk and it doesn't work. And so, you know, you need to recognize that your kids are talking to their friends about sex, and they may not know what all of it means. I grew up in the church. I didn't know what masturbation was till I was 17, but I'd heard the word my whole life, okay? There are, there are those things. Now, that being said, I had been seeing pornography since I was six. It was an unavoidable part of my life. You know, the first time it was magazines we literally found in one of those green boxes where the electrical stuff is found, just in a field but it was also on my friend's dad's television late at night when I went on sleepovers. Uh, and then when we had a modem dial-up internet, it was very present there. It wasn't sexualized for me, it was just a curiosity, but it shaped me nonetheless. Um, I, here's another one, and I hate to be paranoid, but when you send your child on a sleepover, you give up control. And the majority of the things I regret in my childhood happen not in my own because my parents didn't know how free and easy and open it was. I mean, the truth is, by the time I was 15, I wasn't at those houses. I was out. And those were just the houses that allowed me to be out. Okay. Um, and so, so again, don't assume... Uh, 
don't assume in these things that it couldn't be your kid or that these things aren't accessible or that they're too young or any of these things. Be vigilant, be researched, um, and, and enlist them in it. Don't, don't, y you guys know the story of the Buddha? Siddhartha Gautama, traditionally, legendarily, uh, he was royalty. And his father had protected him from seeing poverty, from seeing pain, and from seeing death. He didn't allow any of it in the palace, but one day he got out of the palace and he encountered these things and that's what set him on his quest, sorry. That's what sent him on his quest to find the answers to life was the reality of suffering. Um, you don't want to try and protect your kids from these things, you want to try and prepare them. And that means enlisting their help, explaining why these things matter, talking to them about the things that are going on in their life and helping them process it, etc. Um, but but I, I am deeply concerned by the lack of concern of our parents in this day and age. Um, and that's partially because I was a junior high pastor, uh, but more importantly, it's because I grew up the generation right before this. And so, so it's all very visible to me. Um, yeah, it's getting late, so let's go ahead and close. Again, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come out you know, all of these weeks and listen to this. I know for many of you, you were wanting this, you were happy to find it, um, but it's still, even if you wanted it, it's still really significant. It's something that's very much needed uh, in our churches. Um, and as much as is possible for a single human being who lives in a neighborhood that all of you refuse to visit, uh, I am at your service, uh, and so if you do have further questions, you know, my email is just justin at calvarythehill.com. If you don't have a pen handy, uh, people know where to find me. Um, but, uh, but again, thank you for your time. Have a good night.